Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If you are new, please check out episode one, which explains the history and purpose of Story Night. And if you are a regular listener, you already know that my cousin Emily was a guest way back on episode 10, and that she's nominated many women in her own life since then to share their stories. Tonight, we get to hear from another one of Emily's friends, Alicia. Before we start, we want you to know that Alicia's story includes chapters that are very heavy, shocking, and hard to hear. This is an episode for mature audiences, so if you're surrounded by little ears, you'll want to listen to this later. Alicia will be talking about rape and human trafficking, not only from her past as a teenage victim, but also from her present role as a crusader to stop this horrible crime. Tragically, human trafficking happens everywhere, often right under our noses, but we rarely talk about it. Tonight, we're going to talk about it. And we're not only going to hear Alicia's personal story, but also learn the facts about human trafficking and what we can do to help stop it. So with that, thank you, Alicia, so much for being here. Before we dive into this heavy but very important topic, let's kind of go backwards. And we're going to start with a lighthearted peek into your life now and tell us who you are, introduce yourself to the listeners, and also let us know how you know Emily. Thank you. And thank you, Jessica. Thank you for the listeners who are listening. I just want to say I love Emily. She is a connector and sharer of all things that are passionate towards women, children, and those who may or less be less fortunate. I love being surrounded by like-minded women. So she encourages me every day to keep going. Currently, I live in Northwest Florida with my husband and two kids. I serve as the program director for The Secret Place, which is a commercial sexual exploitation of children service provider or human trafficking. And I love going to the beach. I enjoy anything that is building up a community and small business ventures. My kids love, you know, everything dinosaurs. So we are full throttle into toddler little boyhood and it keeps us on our toes and really busy. I also have a dog and a couple of cats and some fish at my first home that we just purchased here in Northwest Florida during the pandemic. You are a busy mama, not only doing the important work of a wife and mother, but also making a huge impact in the lives of trafficking victims. In order to really understand what you're doing and and why it matters, we need to start with your story. So Alicia, I invite you now, please, to tell us your story. All right. Well, thank you, Jessica. I'm happy to share. Our journey begins in a small town in Michigan, just southeast of Detroit, and population size, maybe 10,000 or less. So needless to say, I came from three generations of having the same teacher in elementary school, where my grandma was friends with my mom's teacher, who then always called me by the same name as my mother. So you can just kind of imagine that small town feel. We grew up in a two-parent home, my brother and I. I have a younger brother. You know, We came from what you would call a normal, average American family household. What was special kind of about me in the sense was that I was kind of ambitious about my education. And so I was going and determined to be the first kid to graduate from college in my family or even get to go to college. So there was a pursuit of academics in my life that was really important to me, had been pressed upon from my dad and both my parents worked in the medical field. So, you know, I was going to be a doctor. We just didn't know which kind. And so, you know, it was pretty normal. I, I, played soccer, you know, as a part of extracurriculars. In high school, I was class president, National Honor Society president, student council president. I mean, I tried them all. I really enjoyed just that atmosphere of the academic life. I loved being at school. So I was friends with just about everybody. I wouldn't say I was the most popular person, but I definitely knew all the kids in my grade and most of those around me. And my house was actually situated kind of a few blocks away from the high school and downtown. So after school, my house was the place where everybody hung out. So you'd think, right, for someone who had this much support and family within a 30-mile radius in every direction, that with the close-knitness there was, 
you would assume that you couldn't get away with anything. And for the most part, that was true. But unbeknownst to me, my parents, the staff at our school, we had a predator posing as a coach who satisfied the boys varsity high school track team. And he had been a coach for probably four or five years before I'd gotten into high school. And I noticed he kind of had this like click around him, this group of boys and girls students who kind of just doted on him, thought he was the best. Uh, This coach would provide meals for kids. He would help them get rides to appointments. He bought them phones if they needed one. And he liked to call it kind of his charity work. So this had probably been going on with a few of my friends in my grade for a year or two before I sort of caught on to what was happening because what happened was thrown right into my face. You see, at the end of the school year, my junior year, As we were pressing on to where we're going to college, I mean, I had a full ride to Michigan State on academics and I was bound and determined to be, you know, a doctor. And at the end of the year, to celebrate one of our state track meet wins, the coach had a barbecue at his house where he invited the parents and faculty and the kids and just to hang out. This was totally normal. This man lived seven blocks away from where I lived. Our parents had all joined us, you know, to celebrate. And at about eight o'clock at night, he sort of told the parents, you can go home now. I'll take care of the kids and kick them out at 10 o'clock. And so just like that, the parents sort of said goodbye to everybody and left where there was about 12 of us who were all sort of left behind this mix of seniors, juniors, and sophomores. And he invited us all down into his basement where he had set up a TV with video games, a pool table, foosball, and he had a a bar that wrapped around the side. And there wasn't any alcohol in sight, but at that time during my life, like I, I was looking for some flags. I didn't really feel uncomfortable yet. It seemed like everybody else was kind of comfortable and had been here before. And all of a sudden we're sort of gathered around in this basement when he says, Hey, I've got a video for you guys to watch, sit down, but I don't want to be responsible for pushing play. So I'm just going to leave it at that and sort of walked off. And like the funny kid of the group jumps up, as you can imagine, and pushes play. And we are all forced to watch this homemade child porn of two of my friends. And at the end, like clockwork, because you, you really can't make this up. These two main performers in our video, my friends walked down the steps into the basement and it was like the party began. The lights went down, the music went up and he opened the bar and it didn't matter if you were drinking alcohol that night or not. At this time, the GHB roofie date rape drug was pretty prevalent and he had a whole bunch that he was going to distribute to every single one of us that night. I don't really remember a lot, Jessica, after that. There's a few really pinnacle moments of my memory where I remember like trying to leave at some point to go pick up a friend. And they told me, you know, I was too drunk to drive and I started laughing and I was like, whatever, you know, and then they ended up getting a ride. So it wasn't a big deal. The next moment I'm being raped by two of my friends in a hot tub and there's people above me on this balcony cheering them on. And my head hits the side of the hot tub and I kind of snap out of it. I come to and I realize what's happening and I kind of panic. And as I look up, the coach is standing above me with a camcorder recording this whole thing. And they're like cheering him on next to him. And I jump out of the hot tub as anybody hopefully would in my situation. Not everybody's as lucky as I am to get out of that kind of situation right there. But I get out and the coach and one of the linebackers from our football team who are there kind of corner me into against the wall and they say, you know, Hey, you're too drunk to drive. You can't leave. They've got my keys. They've got my phone. And they tell me they can, I can go into the other room and sleep it off. I remember those two things because I try to fight and I get pushed up against the wall. Right. So the physical connection kind of keeps that part of my memory. The next memory I have is in the morning, I wake up under a coffee table with my stuff neatly packed on top of the table and I grab it run out the back door because I'm too afraid to go out the front door that I came in the night before. And I like jump over a fence and almost land on this lady walking her dog. And now it's Saturday morning and I know what time it is. So I go to work because that's what I do every Saturday is go to work. So I'm in a moment where any, any person in this situation has a few 
like steps they can take, right? And the first one is trying to like disprove your reality. Did that even happen? You woke up and you have no idea what happened and it feels wrong and looks wrong, but you don't, you're not sure. And there's no one really there to tell you. And it's not something you're going to go, you know, publicize out loud to everybody. And this is definitely before social media. So I was lucky that it didn't get made viral video real fast. You know, I, I think that God was already protecting me in this moment. See, the thing about God and I, we didn't really know each other back then very well. And in fact, I tried to disprove some of his miracles a lot because I was a realist and a scientist heart. And, and at that moment, it was like, well, where were you? Like, how are you real? You wouldn't let this happen to me. Like, you know, those questions and especially at a young, vulnerable 17 year old mind, you know, everything I ever knew just got wiped out in front of me and going to work in the monotony of that. I knew I had to ask somebody I trusted. And I had this friend there who was older than me, had really gained my trust. So, you know, I asked her, you know, what does it mean to have sex with two guys in one night? And she's like, well, you might as well get used to being called a slut because that's all you'll ever be known as. And that was her advice. And I just kept working and I tried to push it out of my brain. And when I got off of work, I had to call my friends and say, hey, you know, I think I was raped last night. Well, my two best friends who live down the street from this man told me, you don't want to go around accusing anyone, do you, Alicia? Rape's a really strong word. And these guys have scholarships, you know, to college and you could ruin everything for them. So when you're 17 years old, you've been sexually assaulted. And the first person that you tell basically silences you. The second person that you tell silences you. Do you think you're going to go run and tell your parents? No. And that was my case. And a lot of the kids that I work with today is the same case. There's something that happened and the shame and the guilt and all that pressure to figure it out doesn't make sense. And it doesn't feel like you have any answers. So you're not really on in this investigation and witch hunt, you know, to take down some pretty powerful people when the people you trust the most have basically told you to be quiet. You know, listening to how you were silenced Many women right now might be feeling angry or shocked or maybe confused. It's, it's so hard to really understand what goes on in the mind of a young girl in the aftermath of such trauma. The tragic reality is that so many children and teens are silenced, just like you were, when they try and tell what happened to them. And often these are not isolated events, but tragically just the first domino. That was certainly the case in your story. So will you tell our listeners what happened during that summer after your junior year? Well, I got invited to these parties. I was expected to perform. And then at the end, I was told to be quiet or else. And my rapist came up to me one day and just says, we're cool, right? And I, I looked at him and I, yeah, we're cool. Not really understanding, but kind of knowing full well what he meant because he was about to go to college and he wanted to make sure my mouth was shut. And I just kind of let that win. Unfortunately, I did not feel confident enough or strong enough to voice what happened to me because each week I'd get a different call saying, hey, this is your advisor. We've heard about your reputation this summer. We're going to ask you to step down from your club position. And almost all of them let me go. So by the time I was a senior and all of my hard work I put in for all those years was being ripped out from under me one at a time and leaving me kind of naked and afraid, right? Like this weird space of vulnerability. And, you know, it was disheartening the most, I think, to be honest, Jessica, was that they were friends of my parents, these advisors, right? These teachers, these people that had heard this thing about me. They knew my family and yet they didn't say anything. And I think what I like to tell people today is if you suspect a child acting out, don't tell them to be quiet or stop. Ask them, what happened to you? Not what did you do? Not what was done to you? You know, what happened? Because we keep close on like what we expect. And when people act out of that expectation, all of a sudden, we operate in assumptions and that can be a very dangerous place to be in for the other person because we don't know what's really going on there. So when these advisors 
who asked me to step down from my leadership positions, instead of finding out that I was raped, they assumed I became the slut. And I hate that word. And we should never talk to women like that because we're not that. That's not it. And what human trafficking and the exploitation of children has shown me over the past few years is that no one really means to be sexually exploited. Even if they choose it, it's not a choice. I went to that party. I made the choice to go. I did not choose what happened to me, right? I could not leave even though anybody else would assume that I could have just left. Why didn't you just leave? You should have known better, right? That, that phrase, oh, you should have known better. I was the girl who should have known better. And it still happens because the predator that we were talking about, the trafficker in my situation, this coach, he had planned this whole thing out for probably months before I even got involved in it. And what we're finding out about trafficking in general is that they can be as patient as years to get some of these kids to be vulnerable enough to get into these situations. So we knew that this coach was now not only preying on young girls to make child pornography, but he had created a system of basically teenage pimps. He was bribing these kids, you know, again, with the good grades and the charity work and the food and the rides and the things that these kids needed if their parents couldn't get them to games right? In exchange for something, they sold drugs for him. They sold fake Rolex watches and other types of uh, jewelry on eBay for him. And then with his consent, basically, I think they, a lot of these kids were forced into it, but they made child pornography, whether or not the kids knew about it. So he had a plethora of tapes and that's what ended up get, getting him busted. But there is, you know, a victory in all of this. My athletic coach finds this tape of me. He finds this tape in the back of a bus where it had been obviously passed around all over. And I didn't know that he had found it until he called me down to the guidance counselor one day when I was in the middle of my senior year. And he told me, you know, he had some evidence. He wanted me to admit to what happened on June 3rd that year before. and. I pled the fifth. I didn't really know. And I didn't really want to bring it up. And I really didn't want to be bullied anymore because I was already cutting myself and trying to attempt suicide and thinking terrible things about myself. And I really didn't want to relive it. Right. I just wanted to graduate and get out of there. And I didn't care about Michigan State anymore. And I, you know, I was trying to get as far away as I possibly could without my parents even knowing what was happening to me. You know, you just imagine in a very short six month time, you've got this straight A student who's barely going to class, who's drinking on during the day. She's not the same girl anymore. And a lot of people just kind of marked it up to, oh, well, she's probably super busy. And so she's tired or she's that slut, right? Because that's what I was getting. The kids were beating me up in the hallways and the adults were ignoring me. And so when the athletic director kind of calls me out, I'm not really <laughs> keen on this idea, but he says, I have 17 other written testimonies that say you were raped that night. Can you confirm? And when he used my word, right, rape, all of a sudden it was like the light broke through, the veil was removed, and like you could see clearly into, okay, yeah, maybe that did happen. Like I wasn't wrong, you know? And I read these testimonies from my friends who have barely spoken a word to me since that day. And I just couldn't believe it. So I said, yes. And I gave him, you know, as much information as I could. And before I knew it, law enforcement had already had evidence on this guy because he had done this at a school before mine. He'd done it to several girls at my school and he was already starting at a new school that summer that um, he had quit. So this coach was already trafficking new kids. And I just felt like, even though I felt called to do something. I didn't want to. I was too broken. I didn't have God next to me. You know, I was not praying. I wasn't asking for any hope. I just wanted to leave. And my mom offered the idea to bring these girls and their parents to my house because they were starting to call and ask questions about, you know, going to court. I didn't know what to do. You know, we were all going to go to college next year. Like, I really didn't feel like doing this. But when they all showed up and my mom sort of looks around and says, if not you, then who leads this? you know, and puts a stop to this, then it probably won't happen. And so I decided to fight. And in the midst of all of this, I got accepted to the University of West Florida, which is down in the panhandle. And I knew that it was going to require me to travel back and forth to go to court. And it was gonna be a really big challenge. 
but I didn't seem to care because that free ride of getting out of there was like, you know, well on my heels. So I said, yes, I lost a lot of friends saying yes to that battle. Parents of my classmates who saw me at restaurants pitied me and told me they felt bad for me. You know, it was just, it was a really hard summer, but coming through it, it was great because we end up winning. But it's me versus the entire school district of my hometown. And all of those girls and their mother's support was gone the minute court actually started. Even though we win, my trafficker gets five years of prison time and both of my rapists get five years of registered sex offenders, all serving their time before I even identified as a victim of human trafficking because the courts didn't know what happened to me. Well, Alicia, listeners are likely feeling shock and anger at the outcome of what you've just described. Now, while we may not have experienced a story exactly like yours, chances are we've come face to face with injustice in some way. And we could spend hours right now picking this apart, asking questions, demanding justice. And yet God says in his word to leave the justice to him and his timing. We know we will see victory, even if it's not how we expected. God had a great victory planned for your story. But there was still such a long road ahead of you. What was it like during and after your college years? As you can imagine, I didn't have a lot of hope and determination to like become a a doctor anymore. In fact, I became homeless after college. I graduated with my psychology degree. I actually did pretty well. In fact, at the end of my, I don't know, around my third year of college, I started the Alpha Chi Omega chapter at our school and was the president for the first two years because our philanthropy was sexual assault awareness. And our philanthropy focus was domestic violence, which there's a local shelter here that you could serve with. So that was where some of my healing really began, to be honest, was doing that and getting vocal about my story even then. But time would pass and it would be even harder, honestly, for me to see and self-discover. I had to really challenge myself to look deep because I was now battling eating disorders. I was battling addiction, homelessness, I was struggling to self-identify. I had what you call body dysmorphia, where you look in the mirror and you don't even recognize yourself. Um, I dressed totally inappropriately. I started exchanging sexual favors for basic entities in life, food, water, and shelter. And I got so desperate. I moved around so many times and eventually found myself in Hawaii working at an at-risk children's shelter where I was hijacked by two kids and they stole the car from me. And I survived that. And I think that was the first time I'd heard God's voice. And that was five to 10 years later. And I heard him say, you don't have to be a hero. And when you hear the whisper, and it's so distinct, and it's opposite of what you're thinking you need to do, because in that moment, I was like, I need to get control of the vehicle again. And he's like, no, don't be a hero. (laughs) I got other plans for you. You know, you got to get out of this thing safely. So I did. And I ended up moving back to Pensacola for a little while, bartending and doing some side work in um, the panhandle again, not really finding my, you know, my, not really finding my purpose. And I was struggling to find it anywhere. I thought it was on a beach. God had given me this vision that I didn't know was from God a long time before even the rape happened about working with women and children on a beach somewhere doing recovery work. And that's why I studied psychology. And here I was trying to figure out how to have that same mission and motivation when I was really struggling just to survive. But then I decided to randomly go to Colorado, I guess because it was a popular place to go. I found myself homeless, (laughs) go figure, right? Trying to figure out how to get a job and how to live and knowing full well that my brain was set to be a doctor, right? And knowing I was an A, B student in both high school and college. So for me, living on ground zero didn't make any sense. And so I started to get kind of angry and I made a promise to myself, if I could work for one year straight without a day off, you know, I could get myself back where I needed to be. And so I did that, like somebody felt bad for me, I think. And they gave me an admin position at this shipping company in Denver where I did, I worked Monday through Friday, eight to five without taking a day off. And then I also picked up a side gig bartending and I worked Saturday and Sunday every weekend. And so I worked for a whole year without one day off 
And I got myself my master's in international psychology. And I received my full-time yoga instructor certification all within that same year and a half. It was the most insane time of my life because of my schedule and dedication kept me so focused. There was no time for anything else. And before you know it, I opened a yoga studio. And in doing that, I met a man who challenged everything I knew about myself. And as hard as I pushed him away, he wouldn't budge. In fact, he kept saying the word potential and I hated that word, (laughs) but he kept saying it like you have so much more to offer the world. How come you're stuck living in this, this cycle? You know, why are you thinking you're not good enough? Why is your self-worth based upon your actions? All these things. And I started to realize he might be the one that God had set out for me. And so we decided to start dating. We dated. I graduated college for the second time. He proposed. I couldn't believe he proposed. I almost told him no because I was afraid that I would ruin everything. Um, And then that moment I hear the God going, yeah, just say yes, you know, like just do it. So I, I say, okay. And we pack up all of our stuff and we move back across the country to Northwest Florida. And I'm trying to figure out why I'm supposed to be here. You know, I keep moving here. I went and visited beaches in Australia and Fiji and Hawaii and California. I've been all over the coast of Florida and I kept finding myself back here. And so we arrive. I think this is 2014. And again, I'm kind of homeless, but I've done this before. So I feel like really educated and smart about how to, you know, get out of homelessness now. And I get us out in six months and we've got our own place and we're kind of just like figuring out the world. We didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. You know, I tried to apply for jobs everywhere. No one would hire me. I'm like, why can't I work with a master's? You know, (laughs) what is going on? And I knew something else was happening because I kind of felt the ground shake. When no one would hire me and nothing was going right and as far as my career, I got down on my knees for the first time because I heard somebody say in a different way, instead of asking for what is your purpose, they said, get down on your knees and ask God for what breaks his heart for you. And I just thought that that was like insane of a thought. So I tried it. <laughs> and when I got down on my knees and I hear that whisper again, that one that I recognized from before, and he says, find my missing children. I just started crying because I didn't think I could have kids. I was told that because of my promiscuity in my past, and I needed to start IVF treatments early, you know, I, I was family planning and to find my missing children. I was like, this means I'm not going to be able to have my own kids. Like, that's what I thought. No, 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 Alicia. (laughs) It meant you will have your own kids and you will find other kids. Those other kids began on a trail starting as an adoption worker. My friend hired me at Bethany Christian Services, which is is a national organization. And I started doing a lot of research and getting myself really educated in foster care. I didn't know much about it at the time and I really wanted to know and I loved home studies and I got to get to meet the families and you know all the instructional designing of their nurseries and you know all this stuff that was just so fun about family planning that I wasn't really doing yet. And so I sort of asked my husband, you know, can we try to have kids? <laughs> and he's like, sure. And then like the next day we're pregnant. So baby number one's along the way. And I get invited to this missing children's memorial walk as an adoption specialist. They really just, you know, we're inviting the community. So I go and I meet the head of search and rescue. His name is Brad Dennis here in uh, Florida. And he, and his organization, um, he co-founded with class kids. They do search and rescue like nationally. So when the Amber alert goes off, like this guy and his team go out. And I just thought that was incredible to meet somebody who did that. And so he actually invited me to meet this other person uh, who was about my age. She was a young girl um, who was considered a human trafficking victim. And the first time I heard the word human trafficking, what is that? So we go and get some coffee and, you know, she's covered in tattoos. She's chain smoking and you can tell she's had lots of dental issues. 
And I could just see all of these signs of, you know, the way I was headed, honestly. And so when she told me her story, and it felt like I was reading my own book, the characters were different, the setting might have been different, but the plot was the same when it came to my story. Hers just didn't have the happier ending. And I just couldn't stop thinking about how similar we sounded. So I started looking up human trafficking and I went, I mean, down the rabbit hole. You want to be very careful if you go down that rabbit hole because you get stuck. But I started to identify and healing started happening and things in my brain started to change and habits I had started to like disappear and new ones were being formed and new thought processes were happening. And before I knew it, I couldn't stop talking about it. I was probably the loudest person in Pensacola from 2015 to now, probably, you know, that just kept talking about it and telling my story because what happened to me was called human trafficking. That had to be just the most pivotal moment for you to to finally have a, a name for this traumatic event so many years later. And in the midst of all of that, what was your relationship with God? How did it grow from hearing that very first whisper to where it is today? Well, after getting on my knees for a different reason, a different purpose for the first time, it felt like like there was this quiet afterward. And I, I had to really reevaluate what I was trying to do. I had to battle the addiction, right? I had to battle this sense of self-worth that constantly left me in a self-fulfilling prophecy of not worthy. And so once I heard that missing children voice, I became really loud in advocating. And amongst the crowd was the head pastors of Liberty Church, which is one of the mega churches in our area, but they're actually an international network. And the head pastor, Kristen Lipscomb, sort of picked me out of the crowd and said, hey, I see what you're doing over here trying to raise money and awareness for anti-human trafficking. Would you be interested in being the program director of our safe house? They already had the house, right? And I couldn't pass that opportunity up. And it was a very difficult decision because I was already creating what was the chapter of the Dream Center, which is also a national organization, nonprofit. Um, So we had the Pensacola Dream Center launching. I had already started to really get passionate about Christine Kane and just her movement with A21 and, you know, being a nameless orphan to this you know, spiritual leader and influencer on a global scale. And now she's doing this thing that helps people like me, you know, I wanted to aspire to be like these women that were in front of me. And in that I had to start severing relationships that were no longer feeding me. And I had a lot of friends here. Remember I went to college, I was gone for a while, but I came back and I, so I didn't just change overnight into this like Christian woman, right? (laughs) Even though I wish it was that easy. I actually had to pull out my journals from like 10 years and process them and see that all the lists that I had been praying about a man, actually God had delivered something better than I had created, right? And when I was trying to start an organization or whatever, I was getting all these closed doors about working with homelessness or working with the mentally ill or working with, you know, any other demographic except for young children, right? I was getting these these opportunities to show up and be there and then start speaking. I wanted to get baptized again after I heard that message. And my husband and I actually planted in a home church. It's called Generation Church here now. And I got baptized and I just started serving. And I started asking him, you know, like, again, what happened to me? Then I got connected with a great counselor and she started doing EMDR which is an ability for me to like slow down some of the processes of my brain around the trauma and sort of see the truth. And it was wild. If you've never experienced EMDR, like you want to do it because if you do it right, it's almost like a black and white movie that goes really slow. And it's like little pick by pick. But I saw the girl. I saw the Alicia who was 17 years old and was being so violently hurt in some of those moments instead of it's all my fault. I should have done something. Right. So God started basically giving me the mirror. And he's like, you know, see what I see in you. Stop thinking what I see in you, but see what I see in you. 
And he started showing up in friends. All of a sudden, meals were being provided when we didn't have any money. We had people pay our bills that we didn't even ask for. When we were struggling to figure out how to get into a rental property from being homeless as a married couple, you know, he like forgave in our taxes. I remember it was so funny, like our Brian, my husband's um, business, I prayed for this specifically. I was like, you know, Lord, pray it was a mess up on Brian's business because we owed money and I didn't, we didn't have any money to give for our taxes one year. Right. And it came back like two weeks later that they had over you know, overtaxed him. And so we got, you know, money back. And it was just like, he just started showing me tiny miracles. And what was so beautiful is he brought me a girl and this girl was way worse off than I was. And he showed me, I was going to have to mentor her. If I wanted to know what human trafficking was in today's age, I needed to go put my hands and feet in the fire and figure out what that was going to look like. And he taught me non-reactivity inconsistency. If you do those two things, working with people of trauma, meaning that you're not reactive, you're responsive, right? And you're not going to be inconsistent, but you're going to be dependable and reliable. And so I would show up at these trap houses in the middle of nowhere, right? Where you know the drugs are heavy and just walk in unscathed and pull this girl out. I take her to the hospital, to the court, you know, to job opportunities anywhere. She was mean as all get up to me some days, but I just sat there and not, and didn't react. And now we have a bond that is so strong. She actually told me one time on her way to her grandfather's funeral because he had committed suicide and her mother blamed her because of her addictions and all of her issues. And when I showed up to take her to the bus stop for that particular trip, you know, I told her, do you know that it's not your fault? <laughs> you know, like, do you know that there's nothing that you did for this man to do what he did? And, and that, you know, there's no, there's no crime too big, you know, there's no sin too big for you to be forgiven. And she just melted. And she told me on her drive there when she'd fallen asleep, cause it was about a six hour ride on the, on the bus. She told me she had this dream that she was kind of scared and she, she saw herself sitting on the bus and she was going and she didn't know when she would stop and she was getting really anxious. And all of a sudden the bus stopped and I walked on and sat down next to her and held her hand until she got there. She said when she woke up, she knew that it was Jesus coming to her to tell her she was going to be okay. And when she got back, she came and got baptized right away. And I'm not here to say like, she's in this great new place because this is a lifelong healing journey. but. I've seen remarkable changes in her mental health and in her physical health. And so God started showing me him in people all the time. And before you know it, this entire program called The Secret Place is being fundraised. And and I can't even, the words aren't there to describe his awesomeness. (laughs) Seriously, his glory is so justified because this house that we are using, the floors were donated, the roof was donated, everything in between. It's a regular house with a whole bunch of bedrooms and and everything in it has been provided by the community. We have been successful to work with these girls who did not know Jesus and want to know him because of our testimonies. I love seeing him. God shows up for me all the time. I had to start praying fervently though, because when you get in this work, you get attacked and you get so attacked, your family, your house, you know, our house has been through more storms than I have actually lived through in my entire life, including trees coming down and almost landing on us, but just being protected by, you know, the fingertip of God where the tree does miss your house by an inch, you know, and I'm just, I can't explain it, but the, the favor and the provision to the point where now I don't worry about paying for things. And in fact, like I can actually afford to send my kids to private school. I never thought I was going to be able to do that. You know, and here I am actually living the life that God had planned for me. He had a very specific purpose. And my story, no way, shape, or form was made because he said I needed to go through rape and and assault. He knew I was going to work with women and children before the rape and assault. When that situation comes a part of it, right? He protected me to live through it. Like I told you, most girls, they might not live through that experience that I went through. They would be beaten, overdose, suicide. You know, like those are the three leading causes of death for the kids in human trafficking. And they happen within seven to 10 years of their first event. So most kids don't live to see their 21st birthday. So I'm here. I know my my story is so important because it provides hope. 
It gives people the opportunity to see what it takes. I call it shucking oysters when you have to dig in and you cut everything off and you just focus and you keep shucking until you get down through that pile, right? And the idea around it is that there's, there is greener grass on the other side, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to waste this time in the present. Presently, it's healing for me to tell my story, but it's also really healing for me to just hang out with my kids and watch, you know, blues clues or whatever, (laughs) you know, I'm starting to realize that my, like God's love for me has nothing to do with my acts of service. That's just a gift that I like to do. I thought it was something that I had to do in order to get into heaven, you know, and turns out that it's one of my gifts. So I give myself patience, patience over pride. I hear the Bible in so many different ways now that speak I don't know, just differently to me than they did before. Before I thought it was seriously a, you know, list of things you had to do in order to be a good person. And now I realize being a good person isn't good enough. You know, I, I cry on my way to work asking for the ability to be the vessel in the hands and feet of Jesus. Be, make me more like you God, because I, you know, I clearly am not good enough to do the work that you can do, but let me just today, let me just try, you know, for this many hours. And if I wake up tomorrow then we must've had a good day today. And that's kind of what I tell the girls we work with now, right? Are you okay just enough to put your head down at night to trust God that you're going to be okay tomorrow too? And if you can do that, you can show up. And if you can show up, you don't have to participate, but you might the next time. And if you participate, watch what happens next, right? And, and God writes all of our stories differently, but he is threading this beautiful tapestry. And I love watching my community grow around that. We're only getting stronger and stronger and more organizations are popping up that want to help survivors as well and do awareness and prevention. And all of a sudden this conversation that was so hard to have before is actually really easy because people are starting to get it, you know, but I think God's got to do a lot more waking up in people's hearts. I really do think he's got to break more hearts in order for us to understand what's going to happen next, but to not fear that broken heart, to embrace it, because it means that there's going to be so much more to offer through those works. And so it's easy to get mad at God and tell him he wasn't there and all the things, but now he's like my best friend, you know? It's amazing to hear you describe the transformation in your life and how God is using your story to find and help his missing children. I know listeners are being called to help, but we need to understand human trafficking a little bit better in order to actually make a difference. So I was hoping you could educate us all so that we know what it is and we know what to be looking for. Maybe even just starting with the actual definition of human trafficking. The definition says human trafficking is the exchange or trade of person through force, fraud, or coercion via maybe sex or labor. There's other forms of trafficking like child soldiers and involuntary domestic servitude, and debt bondage, which are all uh, very prominent in third world countries and other countries overseas. But here in Florida specifically and across our nation, we see labor and sex trafficking. And what used to be thought of as like the kidnapping from, you know, the store and you're taken by the person in the white van and fed candy, you know, stranger danger, all this stuff. So even though you have potentially the opportunity to be kidnapped, it only accounts for 1% of human trafficking and how people and kids get brought into this lifestyle. It's actually much more seductive and smoother that like my coach where we're talking about, he had groomed us. He had focused on us. He gave us points as value. Like, let's just say, you know, Alicia's a 10 out of 10, you know? So if you record her or let me record her with you, right, then I'll pay you out for that. And the kids never have to even know that it's happening to them. We now know as far as in this field that though not every child becomes a sex worker when they're sexually abused as children, we know that 90% of sex workers or sex workers in the industry were actually sexually abused as children. So my point is, is that it's kind of that theory on when did they become a sex worker? When they were, when their mom was raped, when they got pregnant, you know, when the baby was 18 months, the first time she was molested. Is it when she's five, 12, 16, or when she's 24 and she's working on the street now because she can't get a job anywhere because she missed her chance in life. 
it happens so quickly, but yet so undercover. And because of the shame and the guilt and all that stuff that's wrapped around it, it's so evil that we just sort of dismiss it because we don't want to look at it. And when we see these kids with these really maladaptive behaviors and they're acting out and they're getting, you know, really emotional for no reason, it seems like, and they're physically violent and they, you know, they're addicted to drugs. Like, why? Because what we found out is when people are sexually exploited at even a very young age, it travels with them the rest of their life, right? Our body was designed with a purpose. And when that purpose has been manipulated and degraded, it affects everything we do. And so now we know a lot more about human trafficking on a global scale. We know that the United States has the highest demand. We have an issue here in our country with pornography. Even way back then with me, you know, in the VHS tapes, now Pornhub was made free for anybody who wanted to sign up during 2020. I think that that right there should like stop people in their tracks and check in with their families. What's it like? Because if we're allowing that to teach and dictate how we act sexually with one another, we are in a world of a lot of trouble coming forward. Here's why, right? We know that women specifically who have been sexually exploited by the time they're 20 years old, most likely will have encountered not only sexual assault, but STDs or STIs, unwanted pregnancies, miscarriages, and other pelvic issues, right? Before they're even 20 years old. So you know right there that that's a lot on the human body. We're literally killing our bodies with sex. And the amount of manipulation and the drug addictions and the things like that that come with it create this lifestyle that's a $150 billion industry every year. That's more than your Starbucks Apple, NFL, all of those uh, Fortune 500s put together. No one compares to this world-leading criminal industry. And we think, well, a trafficker, okay, yours is a coach, but are they all like that? Yes. (laughs) They're usually in positions of power because they have to have some sort of credibility to cover their tracks. You know, there's a lot of uh, confusion about how a child gets into this. And, you know, my story was unique in one sense, but it's not. There's a lot of issues. We call them the adverse childhood experiences that lead kids into this lifestyle, meaning that there's something at home that they're not getting, which is either, you know, your basic needs, food, water, shelter, or love and attention. And even though the ACEs, those adverse childhood experiences do all add up. There's 10 of them. There's mental illness and parent incarceration and sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, addiction. And for us to not recognize that child as a golden opportunity to actually wrap our arms around them and love on them versus getting them intention for, you know, not showing up with the proper whatever they didn't, you know, bring their uniform, their pencil, you know, like these are the kids that are getting in trouble for tardies and absences. And somebody should have been checking in to say, what happened to you? Where have you been? What can I do for you? I'm not unique. Unfortunately, you know, there's 40 million people who are considered being trafficked at any given moment today. 40 million people around the globe. If we can understand those numbers, we have to understand how close it is and how prevalent it is in our backyard. My hope today in in chatting with you, Jessica, and we can dive in anywhere else, is that your listeners would hear this story and not sit idle to ask questions, to start learning more. There are task force in every state and specifically every district. So you should have a task force in your state. And if they aren't active, make them active, find an organization because there aren't a lot of safe houses and there aren't a lot of beds for when these kids are recovered from their situations, but they don't want to go to a safe house. They want to have a family that loves them. And so my heart is that we would all see, we could be one caring adult for one person and we could make a huge difference. And I don't mean that in the cliche sense of the word. We need to teach our children instead of, Hey, don't talk to strangers teach them what a tricky person is. An adult that asks a child for help is not a safe adult. They give the example of a, a mother. She takes her three kids to the hospital and the one son needs a surgery. So she takes him back to the ER and she tells the older brother to sit with the younger brother. 
And before you know it, some adults had come up to the kids and said, Hey, you know, our kid's throwing a fit in the bathroom. Can you help us get him out? Right. And when the older boy was smart enough to go get security, instead of listening to that guy, they found out there was no kid in the bathroom, but two adults hiding in the stall. That is random, right? But they were looking and prying on vulnerable kids in that situation. We need to teach our kids that having a family password is a good thing. And having a family charging station at night for our phones is a good thing. My mom always used to say nothing good happens after midnight, right? Well, these traffickers prey on children certain times of the day, right when they wake up, right after school, and right before bed. We need to teach our children that these people are going to give isolating compliments, like you're the prettiest girl I've ever seen. You must be smarter than all your friends. Your parents want you to stay a kid forever because they don't want you to be grown. Isolating compliments, singling them out amongst their peers so that they rely on just that person for their love and affirmation. And then those things, those compliments keep coming and they're fueled with gifts and expensive items for no reason, or potentially bitcoins for an exchange of a nude picture. And they're they're asking these kids to perform. We found out that almost every girl between nine and 14 years old who has access to social media has been asked for a naked selfie. About 75% of those kids that we asked actually gave it back, meaning the majority of our kids are sexually exploiting themselves or are being sexually exploited online. So if we know that, we need to be in control of it. And so we definitely need to have some conversations, you know, not just in the family, but in the churches and at the schools about this because it's just so prevalent and it would be ignorant of us to say it doesn't happen here. Absolutely. And yet we do it all the time. We fall for the lie that it can't happen to me or my loved ones or my community. It, it could never happen here. So I want to give you some time to offer listeners practical steps to help stop human trafficking. But before we do that, Alicia, would you take a moment and speak directly to the ladies listening who share your story? You can talk to them in a way that no one else can because you get it. What words do you have to offer them? First of all, I want them to know that you don't deserve it, <laughs> that it wasn't a thing that you know, was supposed to happen. I don't think God lets things happen like that. I think the enemy dresses up very provocatively and entices us in ways that make us feel special. And then he disputes his arrows all over. And while we're in a moment of grief or an act of violence, God is there literally putting up hedges of protection around you in those moments. Number two, I would tell you the only way to heal from these moments and these things is to expose it. Because the, the first thing you want to do is harbor it and protect it and bury it. And that's just what the enemy wants you to do with it. So you have to expose it, whether it's to one close confidant that you have. Maybe you just write it in a journal for the first time, but put a name to it. And then, like what I do with all of my things, I burn them. <laughs> things that no longer serve me, I get rid of. And it's sometimes like that is kind of in a more you know ritualistic, like we, we totally take all of our regrets on pieces of paper and then we throw them in a fire, right? I mean, that's something you can do for you. Counselor is what I recommend. The EMDR is a huge benefit if you can get even free EMDR services from a health clinic. You know, being brave is, is a two-sided coin, right? On one end, you have to go through something hard in order to have courage. So you know that their battle is before you, right? But on the other side of that coin, your story is actually the instruction manual for somebody else's survival guide. And when we notice that and we, we expose that thing, we start to build this like confidence that we didn't know was there before. And Jessica, I'll tell you my third thing is stand in front of your mirror with your arms out like a cactus and press your chest up towards the sky because it is the, the physical sign in your brain it's your body's like display of confidence. So when you pull your shoulders back and you look in the mirror, the endorphins actually start signaling in your brain that you are a happy, confident, positive person. And even if you don't feel like that, 
it's physically impossible to be sad when you're smiling. <laughs> I love this. Listeners, I hope you're all smiles right now. It's just it just amazes me how God created our minds and bodies in such an interconnected way. So now, Alicia, you've told your story. You've shed light on the darkness of human trafficking. You've spoken directly to victims. Now, for our final section of this episode, what do we do about it? For the women who have just had their minds blown and have learned so much, what do we do? How can we make a difference? Those people I encounter every day. So hello, (laughs) blowing your mind is my favorite thing to do, honestly, because if we don't, right, then God's not doing what he's called me to do. And that is to wake people up and find missing children, right? And so we, we know these kids are hidden in plain sight. So it's very much effective to, you know, like I said, have the first thing to do is talk to your own family. Like don't make it about the global issue of human trafficking prevent it within your own family. Go home and survey your kids. Their unsupervised screen time, I know, has probably a sexual ad in it at least every 30 seconds to one minute. It's just whether or not they have access to it. And for those parents, you know, we talk about parental controls on the cell phone. Well, there aren't enough parental controls to detect a liar, a person lying about who they are. We can't Stop an adult from interacting with your kids unless your kids are aware of the scripted language that I was, you know, sharing earlier. So those those people who have that instance, if it's your own kids or nieces and nephews, grandkids, you know, do that first. Then, like me, start the research. You don't believe me, right? There's polarisproject.org that has the national human trafficking hotline and all the demographics and statistics about where human trafficking is. So you can actually look up your own zip code and find out how many calls to the hotline have been over the history of this entire organization, which I think is about 10 years now. And then, like I said, find out what services like at school or a library or anything that has, if there's educational information out there and available, if not, demand it. because. One of the things that we're trying to do here is just give libraries some literature and some education on what human trafficking is. You know, anywhere that kids hang out, traffickers are hanging out. Whether we like it or not, they're at the skating rink, the mall, the movie theater, all of those places. That's where Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, volleyball club, youth group, they're there, right? So they're remember, they're posing. So I would just really take inventory on kind of who you hang out with, do your assessment. You know, what are they involved in? They're, no one's going to come up and lay at, tell you, yes, I'm a trafficker for your information. You know, no, they're going to hide it, but you're going to start to figure it out by signs and symptoms of it, right? Do they have a lot of extracurriculars? Where do they spend their money? What is going on behind closed doors with their kids? And those are the things that you do really want to start to pay attention to. You know, parents kind of get a little bit too leisurely when it comes to like letting friends hang out with friends. You know, they would say in, instantly, no, I would never open the door to a stranger who decided to come over and ask to hang out with my kid. But yet we do it online all the time. And it's totally acceptable because we don't ask enough questions. Right. And so it's not about being overprotective. It's about being educated and smart enough. Like, like we have to stay on top of social media changes and um, the internet. Because we only see the tip of the iceberg of the dark web that does do a lot of the human trafficking, the ads that are placed and, you know, the sexual activities that are happening are on a darker web. And it's just, it's terrifying to go down in that hole. So we won't go there, but just know that, you know, conversations just within your own circles of influence are going to be more helpful than, you know, trying to go and save children. We want education to spread because we just know internationally that this is such a huge problem and it's so undereducated upon. So that is the first thing, right? Take off the pressure that you got to fix anything and just have some conversations. Then once you start having some conversations, figure out what's worthy of your time, right? What I say to people all the time is don't try to change who you are to be anti-human trafficking. Do what you do already really, really well and add anti-human trafficking to it. So for instance, my friend, this is a great one, right? She sells coffee. That's her thing. That's her gig. She has her own coffee brand. She sells coffee. 
So a portion of the proceeds, you know, every other month go towards the secret place. Easy financial benefit for both parties, not a lot of hard work. She puts up some flyers for us, right? We help promote her coffee within our program because all of our staff love coffee. But, you know, it's just a simple little thing. Teachers, right? Like they are already in front of kids. So let us or someone be a virtual guest speaker on their class to their classroom, right? Or in my situation, I'd like to go in person, but I, I've also shown up on virtuals. Educating your inf- group of influence is super important. So if you're part of a network that works with kids, call us, right? Don't be the expert. Let us do it. We're already, I'm trained. I've got the education, <laughs> you know, like, so those are the things I like to just tell people, like, you don't have to try to fix it. What you can do is see what you already do and how do you add anti-trafficking efforts to it? You know, I think that's a formula that can probably work for just about Mm -hmm. anything. (laughs) Anyone, anything. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I can't thank you enough for opening up your story. It is a very vulnerable and raw story. You seem to combine a thick skin with a tender heart. (laughs) <laughs> I've told grit and grace, but I like yours. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And and gosh, God really did just create you with the tools that you need to do some pretty incredible kingdom work. I hope that this just ignited a fire for women, not just to hear your story and have their heart break for you or to just be overwhelmed with pity or shock, but that Instead, there would be that sense of, this is real, it breaks God's heart, and so it should break my heart. And what what can we do? Mm-hmm. I do. I appreciate that. We're active here at The Secret Place. Uh, there are organizations throughout the United States that do similar things, but there's not a ton. Um, honestly, there's less than probably 10 that provide services directly for children. There's a lot of organizations who are active with foster care, and we just know nearly all the kids in foster care have been exploited in some way, shape, or form during their process in in the child welfare system. So that's an easy way, like wherever you are, go serve foster children, whether it's providing diapers to a new family or helping with childcare or transportation. It's just super important to start there. These are America's children, right? And they're going missing and slipping beneath the cracks every day, or they're aging out and becoming child prostitutes, which is not a word, but we have coined it. And it's demonic in its sense. There's That employs a choice. These kids have no choice. They have no one telling them how to live a productive life, you know, and they're just growing up and aging out in between, you know, rides to new locations and, and case managers' offices. And when you start to realize that, and that this is happening in our own country, in our own state, in our own city, and not in a third world country. It makes you want to really, I hope, you know, activate your people group, your support groups, your your wallets, you know, and, and start to find a, a passion for it. So we have our own website. Um, if you want to get to know more about us, it's the secretplacehome.org. You can always book a request to have a public speaker. You can learn about our services. If you're in our area, you know, we have referrals there, but we also are happy to work with um, young adults and children uh, ages 12 to 24. And we would do it at a national level if it was something we could do virtually. So we're, we're really opening our doors for that education, like I said, and awareness, but the prevention and then her rehabilitation is just so needed and there's just not enough services for once these kids have been exploited. So we just hope that, you know, you're inspired and encouraged to learn more, ask a lot of questions, you know, and then of course, wait for our follow-up because we, we want to be able to help, you know, identify and give services to anybody who needs it. That's amazing. Thank you. And for anybody listening who is in the McMinnville, Oregon area, if you have been part of the Calvary Mac family, I'm sure you've heard us talking about a new partnership with Safe Families. A little different, but with the same heart. Yes, and- we love them. Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. We're, we, we've just connected to, you know, good. become one of the Safe Family churches eventually and taking those Yay! first steps. <laughs> That's a huge win. Yes. Okay, cool. So if anyone's listening who has never heard of Safe Families, and if you're in another city, another state, you know that you can always reach out to us. And I'm happy to get you connected with any of our speakers. I know that every lady who comes on is always happy to connect with 
anybody. You don't have to be in their local area. And speaking of being able to reach women from wherever they are listening, Alicia, would you close us in prayer? And would you pray specifically for women who have experienced assault or trauma or trafficking or rape? And also just for the mission, whether it's in our own backyard or on a global scale. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Dear God, thank you again for today. I'm back. I, uh, I really want, Lord, for you to just hear what's on my heart right now. And Lord, I just thank you for Jessica and this podcast and the ability to, again, anytime we get to talk about you, Lord, in that freedom and space, Lord, I just know you're about to move mountains. So Lord, I ask that you move mountains in the women's lives who have been struggling, whether it's with the sexual assaults in their life or a trafficking situation or a lifestyle of trafficking, Lord. We know that depression and anxiety couples with all of the human trafficking and homelessness and, you know, just the issues that seem unmovable, Lord. I ask you move those mountains in those women and their lives so that they can see your glory and they can see your face, Lord, because I know that you're there waiting for them to just believe in that tiny ounce of faith and you will do huge things in that small space, Lord. So I just thank you already in advance for the mountains that you're moving. Lord, I ask that you protect their families, protect their jobs, their vehicles, Lord, because I know that this evilness of human trafficking likes to attack everything around us, Lord. So I ask that you protect them as you move their mountain. And that you give them a clear pathway. Like you say, you're a lamppost, Lord. And so if you can be that lamppost in their life to just show them one next step, the next step. It doesn't have to be a big step, Lord. We know you can do bigger things in one step. So I ask that you light their way in that path of freedom, in that path of healing and righteousness. Lord, give them back their story. I ask that you teach them how their character is not of their history, but of where they're going. And the way that they get there is through you, Lord, and that they're not defined by the incidences of their past, but Lord, that you have promises for them to walk into. Show them their promises. I think that that was the one thing I needed from you, Lord, was, you know, I thought I was supposed to be a doctor and have a family. And guess what? You were right, right? I'm studying to be a doctor and I have a family. It's amazing in your timing, Lord, so that we, I just ask that we would trust you with that timing and that we would be faithful and that we wouldn't be afraid and that you would protect us because when we go through the fire, Lord, we know we're not going to smell like smoke. You've already proclaimed that over us. So Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for your son. I thank you for all of the heartbreaking that went into his story for us to be free to truly be free, right? He absorbed, Jesus absorbed all those sins that human trafficking covers and you still set us free through your son. So I thank you for Jesus and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank I thank you. you so much. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Just praise God that he gave you your story back. I love yeah. that phrase and it is incredible. And I hope that this is an encouragement for women who are still feeling like they're maybe in the darkest part of their story or the or a very broken part of their story. God is not done writing your story nope. and he can give it back and just watch what he can do. Yes. Listening for those whispers. Ladies, I pray that you were just passionately encouraged with this episode and that you are blessed this week and that you're ready to start your own healing or start helping with somebody else's healing. Thank you, Alicia, for being here. Thank you, as always, Emily, for another amazing connection. And thank you, ladies, for listening to this episode. We hope you join us next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.